welcome fellow traveller to the TED Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Christopher Marchand, welcome to the tent once again, although of course you are always here. The listeners don't know this, but Chris Marchand is in fact the producer, the editor, the co-host who appears sometimes on the other side of the mic and sometimes you hear his voice but he's always present chris has written the music for much of the uh tent theology podcast he has edited every single episode including many of the patreon only episodes chris marchand is the reason that we even have tent theology because it was a, an interview i did with him years ago which got me interested in podcasting and i got back in touch with him when i wanted to start tent theology so I think it's time, Chris Marchand, that people hear your voice for a lot longer than just the occasional debrief. Chris Marchand, welcome to the tent. Thanks. Yeah, I've been pondering, like, am I interesting enough? You know, like, well, I have enough to say. We'll have to see you know, what happens here. This is, I, I actually get to say, by popular demand, we have had oh, audience okay. requests. <laughs> I have had audience uh, members write to me saying, please, could you interview Sean McCoy and Chris uh, Marchand? And we already interviewed Natasha Beckles, who also appears once in a while as a co-host. Sean McCoy is going to, uh, I'm not sure when this one airs, but he probably will have, his interview will have aired by the time this one comes out. And Chris, you are also on that list. So I go. think we're going to do this. And um, I definitely know that you're an interesting person. Well, um, thanks. Chris, tell us a little bit about, because uh, people have heard you, listeners to the podcast, we've been going for a year now. I mean, People know where you're from, but remind us again where, where you're calling in from. So I, I live in Peoria, Illinois. It's, it's stuck right in between St. Louis, Missouri and Chicago, Illinois. It's not a, a, a mega city or of any kind, but it's a, it's a city. It's a, it's a decent size. I live in the, in the heart of the Midwest, let's say. I mean, there's cornfields all around. I grew up surrounded by trees and cornfields, basically. Does Sufjan Stevens sing about any, any town that you are a part of? Uh, yes, there is a song. Uh, I can't. I can't remember. It's called Peoria Destroria, and okay. he mentions uh, the fact that Peoria was famous uh, f for having. Um, there was a. We, we were known as Whiskey City for a time. Okay. okay. And uh, and it has to do with uh, some of the aquifers in our region, um, but also there were some like vaudevillian type shows that were here that they would send the, the shows here. And have you ever heard of the, the phrase "if it plays in Peoria"? Have you ever heard? Oh that yeah, phrase? of course. Yes, I have yeah. heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So Sufjan briefly mentions that, and it's a song towards the end of his Illinois album. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Very good. I mean, the, the Sufjan Stephen fandom is another thing that uh, our friendship has formed around that we both. That's right. We're both fans of the Sufjan. Guess we could just talk about that. Yeah. Now, Chris, uh, I'm going to ask you the same sort of question that we ask everybody, right? Like, I'd like to hear about, did you, um, did you grow up in Peoria, Illinois? Like, tell us a little bit about where you came from mm -hmm. and, and what kind of politics were you born into? What was your imagination how did that tend when you were growing up? And then how has that changed now? So start start with where you came from. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a small town called Metamora, but out in the country. In um, Illinois as well? In Illinois. Um, right. And Metamora is, is, is named after, they were a group, or I don't know if we call them a tribe, nationality of Indians, of Native Americans, of indigenous, mm -hmm. indigenous people. I don't know much about that. Maybe that's something I could learn as I go. 
as I, as I, as I mature and what I understand about uh, America, the culture that I inherited, I, I come from two Roman Catholic families. And when I was about five or six, we started going to a Pentecostal church. And so I have this hybrid in my culture of uh, Catholicism, but uh, with Pentecostalism, charismatic renewal, all the, all this type of thing. And with that, I, I would, it's so interesting about politics. My mom handed me our politics through the media that she consumed. I mean, she was, and kind of still is a consummate Pat Robertson, 700 club, you know, listener, like she'll, she'll listen to that. Um, I grew up with TBN on all the time with James Dobson, Focus on the Family radio show on all the time. It was just like ever present. Um, I, I, have you ever heard of, uh, there was this one radio show that I love listening to as a kid. Uh, uh, have you ever heard of Bob Larson? Talk Back with Bob Larson? Yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah. He's, he, he, I, I loved listening to him. He'd be on in the afternoons and sometimes I'd listen to him in the car radio. He would have like, multiple personality disorder people on and like demon possessed people. Okay. I have no idea anymore if any of it was real, but he had them on. And as a kid, I was fascinated with this stuff. All of this is so funny because growing up, I didn't realize it was political. It was just my mom listening to Christian talk radio, Christian uh, television and all those yeah. types of things. I mean, I was very much handed a conservative Christian Republican, like devotion to a Republican party. But at the same time, my parents were not political people. Like they were never active in anything. And because this is a, a visual, uh, this is not a visual medium. Are you a white guy? Where, where is, oh. <laughs> like, in terms of ethnicity, where is your family from? Uh, I, I am supposedly French and German. Okay. And also uh, British of some sort. All right. So definitely like, Anglo white, yeah, European, Roman Catholic, evangelical, Middle America. Here we go. That's that's very much my culture. Right. Yeah, okay. to get to, to cut to the to chase. When people look at me though, they they see a lot of Mediterranean in me because of okay. the cur- I have cur- dark curly hair, robust beard. You know, who who knows where I'm from? I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely. Right. I'm just getting some context here. So yeah. yeah, it's fine. No, it's fine. That that's definitely my culture. Absolutely. Did you have a sense of being politically engaged or that your Christianity had a political edge to it? When did you start to realize that? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this and it's so interesting how I think the politics is embedded for me growing up with end times things. Uh, yeah, right. So I think the first thing that clicked for me about politics was in 1991, uh, the Iraq war where uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and America went over there. And I thought I was looking to my mom, like, is this it? Is this the end times mom? You know? And so there had been enough in my, in my teaching growing up where the end times could always come. And thus our military action, I thought, is this going to bring about the end of the world, the, 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 the coming again of Christ? And what does that mean? Is this the great tribulation? And so, so to me, that's where my political imagination started was like almost like in a fear that uh, countries cause these wars and then cause turmoil everywhere they go <laughs> and c- could possibly bring about the end of the world. I mean, to me, it sounds like a good movie, but uh, I-, I grew up on all of those awful end times movies. Like I just, they were part yeah. of my life. It's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Considering how, how good the material could be for a good movie. Whenever yeah. evangelicals make movies about that stuff, they're utter shit. Like they make the worst <laughs> movies about the best material. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I know. I know. But I mean, so you mentioned evangelical culture. So 
one of the reasons that I've even first met you is that you rat, you run a pop culture or a, a culture podcast, right? Yeah, post consumer reports. Yeah, when did you start getting interested in in or start noticing the the kind of artistic cultural side of the Christian culture you're part of? This is where, like, as an American, I grew up in youth group culture, and I know people make fun of it. Like, people make fun of Christian music. I get right. all that, but right. like. Uh, one of my favorite artists, his name is Steve Taylor. He's an yeah. American musician. And he did this project in the mid 90s, late 90s called Roaring Lambs. And there was this guy, he wrote this book called Roaring Lambs. His name is Bob Briner. And it was all a call to Christians to make good art. And so even though there's so much worth like mock worthy things within Christian culture, I, I was always drawn to these people that were asking the harder questions like, yeah, guys, how do we make this better? How do we how do we figure this out? So, uh, the Roaring Lands album was full of trailblazers, like it was like Over the Rhine. I know you like Over the Rhine. They were yeah. on this Roaring Lands album. Yeah. Uh, Delirious was on there, and you yeah. know maybe maybe for some people Delirious is not as a cheesy worship band, but they were trailblazers in they England. Were. Like they they Absolutely. they were they took a lot of risks artistically. Um, they're definitely one of my favorite bands, um, and so I I think that's where something started to click. Um, I was also. Uh, I still am a huge fan of Rich Mullins. Actually, this this gets into some of the projects that I'm working on, yeah. uh, Rich Mullins based projects. But Rich Mullins was just always saying something that he he never you could never pin him down. Yeah. And it took me a while again to click to realize that there were political connections to his music as well yeah. uh, that I didn't see as first. I just thought, oh, yeah, he's singing about God. He's singing about our faith. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it was those two things like Steve Taylor, Roaring Lambs. Rich Mullins, all those things were making a lot of connections for me in the in the late '90s. There, and I mean, all the artists that you're mentioning, none of them are raging right wing, no. radio talk show kind of uh, culture warriors. So it was interesting how like authentic art coming from Christians was opening up a new world to you that was you were not getting reflected back to you in the in the politics that you were that you were being fed from the radio, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, and yeah, in maybe that's what it it results in is kind of an exodus from Christian culture. And I've I've kind of seen that myself lately over the years. Is like at the beginning of our podcast, I, I kind of push back against you saying, "Oh, I, I think we should be called Christians," or "Or I kind of like the yeah. word evangelical. Yeah, I'd like did, to hold yeah. on to that." Yeah, maybe because there's something sentimental there where I, there's yeah. I still see people there that I love. Well, you at have a non-ironic love. I mean, you genuinely do still you do like a lot of that music and and that world that you came. I mean, that yeah. is still part of your life, right? It's, it's definitely you're not still in rebellion against. You're not an ex-evangelical or anything like that. You're not sneering about it. You like Rich Mullins. You like steve Taylor. yeah and when i interviewed harmony for for the vineyard stuff i was like oh i love worship music yeah <laughs> like right? I, I do i really do like it i really yeah. do yeah well this is partly so so tell me a little bit about the, the 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 official christian side of things then so you are i mean when did you you're you're a you're a an ordained priest we'll talk about yes. that in a bit but tell us about that where did you get from being evangelical kind of non-denominational to uh to becoming an, an episcopalian or an anglican priest where did this come from oh that's a really good question i mean i think maybe one of the ways that i describe it and i might have described it on the podcast before i can't remember is it has to do with rich mullins and his music he, he has this song uh it's called creed and growing up as a kid i, I it's one of my favorite rich mullins songs and it, in it he says i believe in god the father you know it, it what 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 blew my mind was when i realized that he didn't 
author those lyrics himself. Yes, right. right. And and I and so I I started to I started to learn in layers that oh you mean this is old <laughs> this comes from a this comes from the church early early on and he just incorporated it into a song. The realization for me is it made me mad because I was mad that the people around me had not taught me any of those things. So the next stage of that journey is is looking at somebody like C.S. Lewis and understanding uh, where his faith ended up in the Anglican Church, Church of England. And so it's really a coming back to uh, the roots of our faith, in a sense, and, and, and perhaps realizing that the evangelical culture I grew up in didn't really care about any of the roots. They, they were just looking at the next best thing. And yeah, I, right. I still see, maybe that would be my concern about worship culture, is they're just always looking for that next, right in that next wave of some kind of trend or something like that. And I was drawn to something else. I went back a little bit further. Um, there, there was, a, there was a, a guy named Robert Weber. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he, he came out of an evangelical background. He has this book called uh, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. And, it, and it's all about kind of evangelicals being drawn towards liturgy and sacraments and, and yeah. the ancient, one of his famous books is called Ancient Future Church. And he kind of lays out this. And I, I guess I, that's a lot of my journey in, in those, those, types of, those types of books. So I noticed a lot. That is a, a, that's a thing I've noticed a lot about Americans. So I've lived in, in England. As you know, I used to live in the city of Oxford. So that's the home of the Oxford movement, which is the high Anglo-Catholic movement. And it's also just the home of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. And, and, and I noticed a lot of American evangelicals would show up at Oxford and either they've already converted or they would convert to a form of like liturgical, traditional, historical Christianity. So they'd either become Anglicans or Roman Catholics or Orthodox. It's almost like, I don't know if that's true, but it seemed to me that American evangelicals were the major feeding ground for the growth of those other forms of Christianity. It just yeah. was almost, it was almost inevitable to the point of kind of humorous. Like as soon as you met an evangelical American, you're like, yeah, well, he'll be a Roman Catholic within two years. It was almost a kind of a joke amongst <laughs> a us. Cliche. Right? A cliche. It was a cliche yeah. that, that that's what happens. Are, are you saying you would have spotted me coming? You would have been like, oh, yeah. there's one of those guys again. You would and, and I think probably now talking to you, I realized probably for that kind of reason, there was probably a, a shallowness, like the, the roots, they wanted the roots to go down deeper and they weren't being fed. Yeah, yeah. So there is like a kind of a cultural cliche side to it. The other side of it is maybe some of our sadness is when we, we grew up and we realized there's so much that we just weren't told right. about the faith and yeah, we're like, right. well, what's going on here? And a lot of it comes from an, um, an anti-Catholic sentiment, uh, a mistrust of anything resembling the yes. Catholic church. Cause you were, even though your parents had Roman Catholic kind of cultural background, you were raised to mistrust Catholicism as. Yeah. 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 Not so much by my parents, but right. definitely by the churches I grew yes. up in. Yeah. I yeah. totally know that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that world too. Yeah. Yeah. So anything that smacks of kind of tradition is instantly supposedly idolatrous religion or something. And then when you realize that's not true, a whole new world opens up. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And then you, and then you get to the other side and you realize, okay, well, you know, it, life is a lot about, I wouldn't call them necessarily pendulum swings, but you get to another place and you realize it's not this, it's not as yes. utopian as you yes. thought it was there well, either. Well. So, yeah, you know, well. you know, life is just this constant journey, basically, but to use another cliche. I mean, so what's happening now? So you're, a, you're a priest and what's, what's it like being a priest now in the, uh, 
post-Trump, post-COVID age? What's it like being a priest now in America? Tell us a little bit, what does it feel like to be Chris Marchand right now? And you, you're still happy to use the word Christian? <laughs> or Christian? Have I, have I converted you yet away from the word Well, Christian? you know, I, I, I maybe take a multifaceted approach, which is just to use different words, you know, like as we're following Christ or I am a Christ follower. I use all the different words. And, I, and you know, I hear you use Christian too still from time know, to time I, on the it's, podcast. <laughs> it's deeply ingrained. It's uh, hard to break. It's a habit. It's hard to break. Yeah. Well, well, to answer your question, I am an Anglican priest. For many, many years, I was a worship leader, a music leader, and kind of co-pastor and eventually discerned a call that God's calling me into ministry uh, in, in this way as a priest. I've been doing a church plant in, in Peoria, Illinois, since 2010, you know, started a church with another pastor. And uh, to be honest with you, COVID has just been so, so difficult over here. And I, and I actually, I don't know that I would just call it COVID. That certainly put some complicating factors about people coming to church and feeling safe in public, public uh, spaces. I, that's definitely true. But I, I called it four years ago. I mean, I wrote an article on my blog four years ago before Trump was elected, kind of I mean, what am I? I'm just a, a blogger. It's, it's on Post Consumer Reports. You can find it. It's just me saying, really? Are we going to do this? Is this is, is the church going to elect Donald Trump? Do you see the ramifications uh, in our culture, in our church culture? Do you see what's going to happen? And um, I'm looking now, and and it's it's been tough in COVID because I've I've been dealing with so many people that we know that are just utterly disillusioned. And uh, they're disillusioned with their own faith. They look around at the, the other Christians around them and they just, they, they, they can't even be in their presence anymore. And so, so as far as myself as a pastor, uh, my own church is in the process of, of coming to a close. Um, we've lost some people for other interpersonal reasons. And, uh, and, and I don't know, I mean, you, you know other pastors as well. My pastor and I have just come to this conclusion of how tired we are. I don't know if there's something American about that too. Pastors are, all the pressure is on them to keep things going. They're, they're the producers of the organization as opposed to the body of Christ themselves being the producers. It's like, no, it all, the vision falls on the pastor, the keeping all the programs going. But that's yeah. unsustainable. I mean, so yeah, that's really interesting. Is it, do you feel a bit like the gas has run out of the tank or, or would, would you use that kind of imagery? I don't know. Yeah, for myself personally, I would. I, it's it's funny because I, I just uh, spent some of my fall reading this book that they're going to be on, on the podcast, uh, Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Beringer. Uh, it's a book on called Tove, and it's about developing a goodness culture. Right. So I haven't lost my faith in what the church can be. Right. <laughs> like when, when I read the book, I'm just like, oh, it's it's being a family. It's being a community that cares for each other in the name of Christ. And I want to be that. I still want to be in that community. I don't, I, but the gas has run out of the tank for me be, just because of the weariness of the season. My, my family also has endured a lot of personal stuff. My wife has endured a lot of illness. Uh, my daughter who was born in 2018, she was born with a tumor and had to get surgery. It's just kind of been one thing after another. Yeah. And, you know, it, what's funny about that is I, 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 I don't like people to feel sorry for me. <laughs> it's really hard like to bring up those things. So I don't bring them up to say, to, 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 to kind of welcome any kind of pity. It's right. more just like, man, life has been tough. 
yeah. I have to make decisions. Uh, right now, it's about my family, being able to provide for them. And I have a bunch of artistic pursuits as well. Yeah, look, trying to figure out what that means for me in the future. But you'd be, you'd be kind of a fool if you looked at the last four or five years and everything you've just described. And if you said, yeah, right, life is normal. Let's keep going. I mean, there'd be something yeah. wrong with you. You'd be sort of pathological, right? Yeah. If, like the fact That's that right. you need to stop. Yeah. It just means you're a, probably a decent functioning human being as far as I can tell. Oh, man. Let's hope so. You know, okay, so really quickly, I'll say this. I just turned 40. Just turned 40. Uh, in my 20s, I was hopeful, naive. I, you know, it's like, I just, I want to I do the things that I want to do. Get married. I, I'm going to make music. I'm going to write. I'm going to do all these things. Then I go to seminary. My, my 30s were, whoa life is really hard. Uh, you know, things kept happening. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. That's another thing I can add to that list. Got cancer in 2008. No way. What I'm seeing in my forties is me waking up to the trauma that I've endured as a young child, like parental trauma, uh, relational trauma on up till now. And so I think a part of me saying that I need to not be in church ministry right now is me figuring out how to deal with my emotional traumas. Yeah, and it's right. something I have been doing over the past year. So, I mean, you know, yeah, that, that's my own reflection. But I think the whole world is kind of waking up to some of that right now. Yeah, so. what do you see? Tell, tell me, I'd love to hear a bit about your, I like your point of view of the world. What are, you, what are you observing right now? Where do you think things are going in terms of Christian culture, Christian politics, Christian church, church life? In 10 years time, what do you think, if we have a chat, what do you think you'll be saying that happened in the last 10 years? I'll, I'll, I'll preface my answer by saying it's tough because I have a job where I teach at an online Christian school. So okay. I'm releasing something into the public right now. And am I going to, I'm going to say something that gets me fired? You know, I, I, I share my opinions on things. Um, so I, I'll say, I'll say something that I've been doing personally that yeah. might make me evil to some people. Uh-huh. Um, I've been just trying to educate myself on what critical race theory is, okay. trying to listen yeah, really. to voices within the church yeah, and in academia to understand and unpack American history. Yeah. Like, what do we do about American history? And I've had numerous, like, I've had so many conversations and they're exhausting. Like, they're just exhausting conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had somebody tell me that we shouldn't point out the, 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 the sins of our elders because there's biblical precedent that we shouldn't point out the sins of our elders. And, and that thus we're, we're, we're going down a dangerous path. And I've also said that, you know, that uh, discussing these matters about race in America, it's just a Trojan horse for making all, all white people feel bad about themselves. That, that, uh, so I, I have all these, these conflicting thoughts that, so I don't know what to do, Stephen. I mean, the, the public sphere right now, I, I know that you've gotten off social media. I don't necessarily, you're not fully off, but you're, you know, you, you've, you've scaled I back. I do Instagram. I don't do Facebook anymore. No. Yeah. Here's, here's what I've been contemplating within myself is to what extent do I engage with people and can devote energy to it? And to, to what extent do I just need to be working on the more important things? Because things are so divisive right now. I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand. I feel like America and American Christianity have, has not only have they lost their moral core, which, which should be bad enough, but they've, they've lost their minds. Yeah, yeah, they have. I, I don't know where to go with that, Stephen. Um, some people talk about moving to other countries and, and get out of here. I'm yeah. not, not going to do that anytime soon. 
maybe I'm in this place of how can I scale back and love my neighbor as myself? Because that's about all I can do sometimes. I do find a lot of people, including myself, we're just almost taking our eyes off the far horizon and just putting it right. Like I'm just lowering my gaze to like just the people in front of me. I just can't even. That's about it. Yeah. You know, and in a way I I'm fully aware that that's not a great solution to all the problems, but in some ways it's just all that my heart can hold right now. Yeah. And I mean, tell me a little bit about, I mean, you're an educator. You've been a principal of a school. Yes. You now work for a school again. And you mentioned even that you were nervous about saying stuff in public. I, yes. I'm a I freelancer. I don't, I yeah. don't get in trouble. <laughs> I can say what I want and, and I'm, I'll lose some listeners, but I don't like lose my job. What happens to you being some sort of thoughtful public Christian presence who has to hold up? I don't know. Do you feel that you're representing a, a whole culture or how beholden are you to the lowest common denominator in your room? Well, so I teach a really interesting class at my school, and it's American government, of all things. And so I teach a little, it's really a lot like an intro to political philosophy, and also it's coupled with American history, right? So I'm, I'm constantly thinking in my class, how much do I say, how much do I teach my kids about this? And am I a coward if I don't actually fully address uh, some of our, some of American history and how far do I take things? Uh, yeah. I'll give you an example. Are are you as a are you familiar with John Locke and like some of his teachings? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I figured you would be of all people. <laughs> well, I have a philosophy degree, so yeah, I had to. Do I know, that. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, one of his big things is, and, and it, it wasn't just John Locke; it was other people. It's this the, the term uh, the social contract. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Rousseau, Locke. Yeah. Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes, they all kind of used these terms uh, back in the day, you know, the, when, when democracy was starting to percolate its way into the world. Well, the beauty of the social contract is that people can choose what their government looks like. Right. And, and Locke just says it over and over again. When a people says, you, O oh, rulers, are not uh, oh, obeying the social contract, they can change it. They can change their government. And that's what happened in the American Revolution. The people rose up and said, this is what we want to have happen. Now, here's the thing about the social contract. It doesn't apply to any people of color. Yeah. So if I were to say this shows that America was founded as a white supremacist nation, I'm merely just stating a fact. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, I'm not trying to really, I'm, I mean, it only sounds incendiary because you haven't absorbed how much of a fact it was. I know. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to be incendiary. I'm just saying like, I'm not saying that we're like modern day white supremacists. I'm saying it just simply was a white supremacist yeah. understanding of yeah. the world. Yeah. The Indians, the, the natives, the native peoples had no say in any of it. No. Uh, and uh, anyway, so there's things like that where I go, what do I say? How much do I say? What do, how do I, how do I bring this about? I'm teaching high schoolers, by the way, yeah. pretty conservative families. Set, yeah. Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles. And soon, <laughs> have you, have you read that book? I have it on my shelves and I haven't read it yet. Well, I really want to. That's all you need. It's a, it's a, it's very readable. It's super well-researched. It's perfect book. There you go. Talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of where I go. It's, it's this push and this pull of like, how much do I say and s- still maintain relationships with people, maintain my job, yeah. those types of things. Do yeah. you get in trouble when you teach this stuff? No, I haven't yet. Yeah. Last year, I did something in my class where I just had students 
read a bunch of articles about the civil rights era, the, the po it's called reconstruction. So the post-civil war era, mm -hmm. you know, after they were trying to rebuild the country and figure out what to do with the former slaves. I just want them to read about history. The Tulsa race massacre, if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of those instances where entire towns of black people were either, you know, they were killed or they were run out of their towns. I want, I, I do want students to know about those things because they weren't taught to me when I was growing up. That's for sure. I mean, and of course, the ridiculous boneheadedness of it all is that white Americans are called just even teaching that they call that critical race theory is if just acknowledging that this happened is itself some sort of uh, liberal agenda. It's just absurd. Like what, they've lost their minds. Yeah. So what I've started to do and I, I'm maybe I'm practicing even here before you now, which is. So when somebody says to me, that's critical race theory, I go, oh, is it? What, what do you know about critical yeah, race theory? Yeah, so we bounce, we bounce back and forth. And what I try to say is, is like, you know what? To be honest with you, I really don't even know very much about critical race theory. To us, like, so I find that some people I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Like, I'm like, really? Have you read any primary source texts on this? Yeah, Can you name for me a few of the a few yeah. of the the leading proponents of it? Name one. Yeah. Like Del Delgado. I uh, I know Delgado. Um, there's a few of them, right? But nobody can name anybody. And not. so to. It, it, it might not work. It might be, you know, pearls before swine, but at least establishing, hey, even I don't know very much about this. And I'm actually not teaching it in class. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not. <laughs> all I had my students read was a Wikipedia article. Exactly. That's all I had them do. I know. I know. So, I remember what we talked once about saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school. Yeah. Have, do you do that? or did, Tell me the, why you don't do that anymore or what happened there. My, the school that I used to be headmaster at, and our, our kids still go to there to school. We have lots of friends there. It's a good community. You know, there there came a point where one parent came before the, the the school board and said, "Hey, I think we should start saying the pledge." And I had never said the pledge. Uh, I didn't. I didn't want to. I, I I had abandoned that sometime earlier. The need to say the pledge. I, I grew up in public school saying it most days. I think in high school, we said it less and less, but I think if there's actually been quite a resurgence in the last 10, 20 years, like, no, we do need to say the pledge in public schools, but I had abandoned it quite, quite a long time ago. I mean, I, I think one of the big influences on my life was I read uh, Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon, and just seeing how much American identity was embedded into the Christian church that it's really it's it's time to figure out ways to figure out what our true identity in Christ is and to, to separate those things out. So I, I, I guess here's what's funny about it is, is I think that saying the pledge is a form of idolatry. Uh, it's some it's a strange religious ceremony, a civil religious ceremony, a ritual uh, that you, you're giving part of yourself over to love of country that is not, it's, 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 it's an inordinate affection towards country. And I don't want to teach my kids that. I don't yeah. want my kids to be, to have an allegiance to the state. And guess what? Most Christians don't want that either. They just don't realize it. Patriotism, nationalism in America is such a strange thing. I, I can't figure out American Christians. Like, when our people think they're being forced to take a vaccine, they hate the government. And yet when they when it says something like 
when we say that our troops have saved our lives, that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, mil- foreign wars yeah. is the only reason we can have freedom as America, I now know, they're utterly, utterly devoted to the national cause. Yeah. But they won't take a vaccine because they, you know, they they they, they distrust the government whenever it it, yeah. it meets their needs and when I, I I can't make sense of it sometimes. Well, there is no sense. It is it is it is fundamentally <laughs> irreconcilable. You can't hate the government and love the military. You can't do yes. those two things, right? But right. they do, and it, there's no right. sense to it. But of course, I, I mean, it's not really even, it's not the state that the patriotism is aimed at. It's the, it's the idea of exceptionalism, of being mm-hmm. this kind of exceptional nation, a God-chosen idea, really. It's, it's not so much the machineries of, it's not the buildings in Washington, D.C. that people are worshipping, right? It's the idea yeah. that America has been chosen and all that. Which is which is interesting because the idea of the divine right of kings it, that that was placed in a singular person, and America has embedded that into our national identity, right? You so know, what's like happened our, to you? You know, you read you read Wilmot, you read Stanley Halvas. Where, where where does that? How does that make you stand now? Like when you think of yourself as do you think of yourself as a, as an American? Are you patriotic at all? What do you think? What happens on the Fourth of July? On the Fourth of July, we go to fireworks because of kids. As soon as my kids lose interest in the fireworks, I will not be going to any 4th of July thing. I just don't have any interest in it. Right. It's yeah. it's like, I, I, as somebody who thinks that nonviolence is the way of the world, I, I yeah. don't support what happened in the American Revolution. I don't right. support yeah. how it happened. I don't support England either. I don't support, exactly. like, I think there was violence on all sides. And I think uh, Christians are called to something else. There, there's an alternate timeline that never happened. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. So an I, undiscovered I country. Yeah. Well, and it's the same thing with how uh, indigenous peoples were treated as well. I mean, there's a there's a fully alternate way of see, of viewing how that could have happened. I don't think it was wrong that that European settlers came here to this to this land. It's everything that happened afterward is where, where the problems start. But, but there you go. So to, to, to go back to your question about the flag, I, I was asked to start leading the pledge. And I said, no, I, I won't do it. I, I taught them a few patriotic songs, which, by the way, the, our, our national anthem is also a song of violence. It's not yeah, it's just a song bombs, of mere. Yeah. It's all bombs and winning a, winning a battle against you, you lot, uh, the British as well. Actually, oh, not- every single line contains outright uh, rejection and disobedience to the way of Jesus. And yeah, and to Romans yeah. 13, by the way, everyone who loves Romans 13. <laughs> it's the opposite of any submission to the ruling authorities. But anyway, there you go. So I, I said, no, they, in my school, they had a student lead the pledge and I just stood by. And that was in the last few months that I was there at the school. And so, so you, you won't commit idolatry, but you'll let students do it for you. Yeah. So the question that I would have is, was I a coward by even letting it happen? Should I just have quit on the spot? You know, I did not quit on the spot. You know, the school board in some ways has the ultimate authority in it in in our school. And that's they made that decision. Yeah. And they still say the pledge today. I don't force my own children to not say the pledge, but I I should do a check in with them and say, yeah, what do you think about it? Because I th- I see some of their sim- their their similar approaches as me. I mean, ne- you're negotiating some really tight corners. I think as in, in your world, there's a lot of hard edges that you have to move yeah. around for sure. Yeah. One of the weird ways that I that I that I talk about it is a lot of the evangelicals that that my kids go to school with. Yeah. They would never, if I were to say, I want you to bow before the cross. 
Or yeah, they never do that. They would. That's weird. That's like idolatry. And yet yeah. here they are pledging yeah. themselves to a, 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 a national symbol. Yeah. You know, in a physical way, putting their hand over their heart. And so I, I'm, I, I find that fa- fascinating. That yeah. they, what they would call idolatry in a worship setting, they see as true virtuous devotion in a civic religious sense. I told you about that time that I spoke to a bunch of American young people. I asked them, I said, who here, they're all Christian. I said, who here would think it's okay to kill in the name of Christianity? And nobody puts up their hand. And I said, who here supports the troops? And everybody put up their hand. Yeah. Like, all right. So you do think it's okay to kill in the name of your country, but not in the name of Christianity. Okay. So yeah. now we've got the migration of the holy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Was that Kavanaugh? Was that yeah, Kavanaugh? that's a William yeah, Kavanaugh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a demonstration of it. I don't think it's good to kill in the name of Christianity either, but it's definitely a demonstration of how we think it's rational to kill in the name of our country, but it's not rational to kill in the name of our religion. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's, yeah. I mean, what, what's, where's this going to take us, Chris, where is this, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, what's going to happen to, to you as a, as a pastor without a church, do you think you might have a church again one day? Or are you pursuing art projects? Are you going to be a teacher for longer? What do you think is going to happen to you? Currently I'm going to teach hopefully if I can keep my job. Yeah. Uh, and for now, I, as a pastor, I'm, I'm entering into a season of rest for real. Yep. Uh, yep. and it's for my own family. Uh, just just to devote myself to the local i mean i i do have i'm really thankful for good friends and good community and people that i that i care that care about me and that we have we talk about our lives and our anxieties and our fears mm-hmm. i don't know where the uh, the american church is headed i don't know what's going to happen it's 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 crazy uh so do you I feel a home that, i mean do you feel there's a place for you within there? the church yeah or within american christianity how do you feel about that well, I think there's been such a rift. And so I, I feel like maybe many pastors are trying to stand in the middle and hold it all together. Right. Uh, there's people that have gone down the, the, the right wing side of things that are devoted to it. And then there's other people that just see the church as the, the, more and more the utter abusers. Like they, they have abused the world. They have oppressed right. the world. And, they, right. and so I don't know how to hold the tension. Um, I want to be in a place where people that seek christ together that we pray we we sing together i still want to do yeah, that yeah i don't know where that is for me right now um you know we'll, we'll see for my own family but yeah i don't know the state of the future of the church in america yeah so yeah. many people who are actually in a similar position you just saying that i think there's going to be a lot of heads nodding actually as people listen yeah i guess how do we support each other how do we continue to point to christ is 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 the question yeah. Are you working on any, um, how's the yeah. artistic side, the cultural side? Is that, are you flexing those muscles at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll announce this now. Maybe, maybe it'll already be out by, by now, but I do want to put out some of the music that I've done for Tent Theology. Just they're, they're about, you know, two minute long little pieces. Oh yeah. And well, I want like to just a little kind of, album, like a band a little, camp album. A little band camp album. So, oh, you know, maybe, that's a great idea. There you go. I want to do that. Um, you know, we have so many songs that have been inspired by Tent Theology. Or written with tent theology in mind, right? What's what are the other ones other than you have our yes? Is is uh Lucy, did she write one as well? Lucy Grimble? Lucy Grimble's done stuff. Um Steve Bell has done stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I there's some others, a guy named Blake Crawford has done stuff. Uh there's some interesting people. Every once in a while, somebody will send me an email. There's a guy named Bometheus who does uh he oh, yeah. he writes music about Kierkegaard. 
I, I had him on my podcast. So there you go. Knew that. Yeah. Well, I, he, I, okay. Yeah. So I mean, so, there's, there, I think if you were to add up all the people, all the musicians, including yourself, we could make a tidy little album. I think it would be really little, fun. Like a benefit album or something like, you know, we are the world type of thing. You know? <laughs> so do you think, since, yeah. since you're the editor of this, you're going to even edit yourself probably. Do you think that we would be able to put a little, um, a little Tenth Theology music album out from, of your stuff? Oh, of my stuff. Yeah. Are yeah, you going to announce it now? Or are we going to launch yeah, it now? I'm, I'm going to launch it now. I don't know when it's going to come out. Maybe, maybe like early spring or something like that. Late, late winter, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so there's that. Let's do it. Let's, yeah. let's make sure that this podcast comes out when you can also send people to the Bandcamp link. That's there fun. you go. It'll be fun. Yeah. 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 It'll be good. <laughs> I hope people enjoy. It. I've enjoyed making the music. Often what I do, I'll say this now, is I listen to an episode and I and I grab a line from what somebody says, maybe you or the guest, and then I'll title the song that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just in the moment kind of just come up with something. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's very stream of consciousness sometimes. So so I, I, I kind of like doing that. Like uh, when uh, when Shane Claiborne was on, he said, I've been driving around with a truckload of guns. Yeah. And, uh, and and so I use that as a title for a song. I just that, that, I like that, that, little that song imagery too. captured me. Truckload of guns. I'm like, oh, that's provocative. So my my brother David Backhouse is the man who wrote the uh, the themes music yeah. that begin and ends the podcast, and you have written all the music that happens in the middle, so That's all right. the interstitial stuff, and also if anybody any patrons that listen to the um, to the Patreon extra material, the Mark podcast, the Sermon on the Mount stuff, the Acts, all those things. That's all the uh, interstitial music for that as well. And the theme music is all Chris yeah. Marchand. So that's if right. you like that music, then you'll like this album that's going to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks. I, I have a couple of more things I could share as well. If you have yeah, what else, you, what else are you working on? <laughs> well, one is, in some ways, my main thing that I haven't had the just the time or the energy to get to is my own writing. So I hope to, I've been writing some short stories. I have ideas for some novels. You published a book on Christmas. I published a, a book ago. on Christmas mm-hmm. and I've, I've pivoted to writing stories. I mean, okay. my first novel that I plan to get to uh, that I've written three chapters for is a, is a, is about Christmas. It's okay. a, it's, it's a story about Christmas and kind of incorporating the things I've learned, but in something that would be compelling in a narrative. So I hope to get there. Right. So, so there's that. Uh, and then uh, I, I do another podcast on on the artist Rich Mullins, and we're in the process of we know the lady who used to be in a band with him in the 70s and early 80s, and we're in the process of helping her release his older early music, his older early music uh, into physical format into a bunch of streaming services, and so we're starting that. It's it's really exciting. My, the that guy is. that I do the podcast with. We've been planning it for many years, trying to figure yeah. out how to do it and get this get this older music that no one's really heard out into the world. So, yeah, 
What would you say as a Rich Mullins super fan, like for people who yeah. are interested in him, what would you, what's a good starting or jumping on point for people who want to listen more about Rich Mullins? Well, uh, you know, his, his classic album is called A Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band. Mm-hmm. And those are some of those iconic songs. The song I mentioned earlier, Creed, is on there. The first half of that album is based in liturgy, and the second half of that album is based in his his American identity and maybe some of his, his tensions with that. So I think that's a really interesting album. His two previous albums before that were also really good. They're called A World as Best as I Remember It. Uh, it's, it's a lot of, I think what I think is interesting about Rich Mullins is how he is able to reflect on the scriptures, on the Bible in a way that doesn't leave you just feeling like someone just preaching at me. Yeah. Uh, yep. So, so it's, yeah, it, he's I would say those three touch. albums. Yeah. And what about yeah. books? You're a reader and you're a consumer of, of good art in all sorts of ways. What other things would you recommend? Is there any books that you'd recommend to, to mm. the readers, to the listeners? You know, one, one book that I always say that people should read uh, is a canticle for Leibowitz. I always oh, yeah. talk about that book. It's post-apocalyptic. It's about these monks and they, you know, they're preserving culture but it's also about how to how do you pastor people through disaster? Like how oh, do you minister? Wow. How do you minister people? To, you know, in the midst of just like the last third of the book is just about like it's 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 a, it's a, it's a, it's really thought provoking for me. So that's I read that one recently in the last year. Another book that I read this last year uh, that in, in some ways is really famous, but no one has ever really read it. Only like ten yep. people have read it. It's the Silmarillion. Oh, of course, Tolkien, yeah. You know. And I was joking with people this summer that I said, I don't really read leadership manual books because they just bore me to tears. Ah, right. But the Silmarillion is a leadership manual. It's about yes. like, how, how do you look at the corruption of your own heart and the, the selfishness inherent in, in human societies and mm. the, the ramifications of just greed? And I was like, this is a leadership manual. You know, I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Did you did you know that uh, my friendship with David uh, uh, Benjamin Blower began because we both were reading the Silmarillion? We realized at the same time. Oh, that's great. That's uh, great. Yeah. No, I didn't at, know that. on the same page. So we we'd met and we kind of knew each other a little bit. And I said, "Oh, what are you reading right now?" He said, "Oh, I'm reading the Silmarillion." I said, "Oh, really? What? Where are you up to?" And he said, "Oh, I'm up to this story." And I went, "Oh, really? What page number are you on?" And we realized we'd both put our bookmarks in the same page to me in order to come and meet <sighs> each other. <laughs> You got that's not you have to figure out what that's about. The the what's the destiny, what's the plan there? Why, why would that even happen? That's should we turn this into the Silmarillion podcast. There get, you go. Get all 10 listeners in the world. <laughs> that's right. Well, there you go. Yeah, that that's where I've been at this year for sure. Oh, Chris, it's really good. I'm glad that we were able to have this uh time to sort of a little window into the life of Chris Marchand. And uh we're definitely gonna be watching this space to see what happens as you go on furlough as it were as you let the soil kind of renew itself i think Mm, i like that i hope so very good chris marchand thank you for joining the tent and thank you for all the work you do it's uh this would not happen without you so anyone who likes the tent theology podcast needs to stand up and give you an ovation clap right now yeah thanks i enjoy it i enjoy editing podcasts I, i can admit it right here right now Hey, maybe we should farm you out as a podcast producer extraordinaire. Thanks, Stephen. But until then, see you later, Chris. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. 
This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patron page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.